Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an award-winning show that inspires, educates, and empowers patients, survivors, and caregivers to live well with cancer. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, a program that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Natalie Castelli, Senior Director at the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person at one of 175 locations, online, or over our toll-free helpline, you're getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Cancer always catches people by surprise and will always be someone else's problem. We are all terrified that one day that someone else will be us. Those are oncologist and caregiver John Marshall's words in the memoir he has co-authored with his wife. As they recount in their new book, Off Our Chests, that one day came in 2006 when Liza was diagnosed just before cancer with stage three triple negative breast cancer. As diagnosis turned to many long months of surgery, clinical trials, and aggressive chemo and radiation therapies, John found his medical expertise no match for his wife's resilience and self-reliance. With little complaint, she powered through fear and treatment side effects to keep her emotional balance and commitments to family and community intact. Now, 16 years past this life-changing experience, Liza and John call their story a candid tour through the world of cancer. And candid it is. Honest and unafraid to be vulnerable, the marshals share what it's like for a doctor to learn humility as a caregiver and a woman to face many levels of loss with courage and grace. I'm pleased to welcome to today's show, Liza and John Marshall, patient, oncologist, caregiver, spouses, and authors. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks very much for having us. So I was so excited to meet you. I have like endless questions, but my team really reeled me in and uh, kept me organized for today's conversation. So I'm going to start really with the name of the book, because I love a great title and I love a play on words. I'd like to hear from you. What were you trying to get off your chests when you decided to write this book? Well, I'll start. I'm the... Um, the I'm the physical, right? I, I, I had had my breasts removed from my chest, one, one in 2006 and one about seven years later. Um, and then also trying to, we were trying to give, I was trying to give, I think, a realistic uh, view of what, what a patient goes through. I think John had more to get off his chest. <laughs> well, I, I certainly have lived this world of cancer a long time, and I have lived it now from more angles than I had bargained for from, from the beginning, from um, sort of the loss of my mom as a kid to becoming an oncologist to um, then having uh, to become a caregiver. I didn't want to become a caregiver, but having to become a caregiver, I had a lot of experiences and thoughts about the world of cancer, cancer medicine, cancer research, um, and the the impact of a cancer diagnosis on a family. So uh, Liza had more to get off her chest than just her breast, quite honestly. She had a lot to share as well. So I think we both had things to both physically and emotionally get off our chest. And then 
after the fact, we came to the conclusion that we had stuff to get off the chest to each other, right? There's that things we hadn't really said in the heat of the battle that 10, 15 years later, we then felt like we could share with each other. So you started out thinking of others and ultimately were, in fact, speaking to each other through this book. Um, Let's go back in time to when Liza first received her diagnosis. And to me, it's fascinating. Over the years, I've spoken to a lot of people who've shared with me what that fateful moment was like when they received the news. But I've never heard a story like yours, Liza's, um, with the additional interest that you and John don't remember the event quite the same way. So, Liza, can you start by telling us what you recall happening? And John, let us know your version of events. Yeah, he can, he can correct in a minute. But um, I, so, yes, I have had, um, I've had a couple of breast issues and uh, ended up having a biopsy because I woke up one morning and my breast was swollen. And we honestly didn't really think that much of it. Uh, and I went in to see the surgical oncologist and she said, well, let's just, you know, let's we can't see anything on an, uh, on an ultrasound, but let's, um, let's just go ahead and do a biopsy. So the following Monday, I was on the phone with John, and we tended to talk to each other most mornings after the kids had gone to school and the dog had been walked just to kind of work out who was going to take charge of things the rest of the day with the children and go through our, our list of business items. And we were just talking, and all of a sudden, John said, you have breast cancer. And I, I honestly thought he was joking. I, I mean, I, I, I know I'd had a biopsy, but somehow I just didn't quite link the two. And why would John be saying this? I mean, and I am very funny. Yeah. <laughs> it was not his best joke, I will say. Um, but so I, um, I you know, I, what? And, and he said, no, I've got the pathology report here. You have breast cancer. Now, the way I remember it is that uh, was that the oncologist who happened to be running the biopsy study that I was on, it was just a tissue banking study. Uh, she had been copied on the report and she walked into John's office. John remembers it a little bit differently. Yeah, I remember it. I, I, I'm, I'm still to this day not 100% sure who's correct, but I actually was copied. I did go back to confirm that. Yeah. I was copied on um, Liza's pathology report inappropriately, right? In today's HIPAA world, I should not be getting my wife's report. But back then, it's sort of like I was known in the center. And so they just basically figured I'd want to know. So they copied me. But um, so it was in my stack of papers. It was in my my facts. It was the morning before Thanksgiving. I think we both remember that very well. And the morning, the Monday before Thanksgiving. And, and, you know, your life just changes when, when you get this diagnosis. We refer to it as the wham moment when you run into this glass wall that you didn't see coming and all of a sudden everything is different. And, you know, oncologists hate, every doctor hates to give bad news. We don't like doing it. And to be the one who was giving my wife her diagnosis, and I was reflexive. I didn't think about it. It just was there in front of me. And honestly, two weeks before that, when we first sort of noticed the breast swelling, I saw what I thought was looked like inflammatory breast cancer and, um, and then, but couldn't actually bring myself to tell her that. Um, so I just bottled that right up emotionally and said, couldn't be true. Can't be true. I must be wrong. And then to have this come onto my desk uh, <laughs> and to be on the phone with Liza when I first saw it uh, was sort of uh, a lesson learned, I guess, about uh, bottling things up. And 
Liza, for you, I mean, most people obviously will get this news from their um, from their doctor, right? Maybe over the phone, or you should come into the office. Clearly, you describe being blindsided by the way this was announced to you. But how did you feel ultimately that it was your spouse announcing this life changing diagnosis? Well, it was. You know, it was sort of two-edged, I guess, in many ways. I mean, it was terrible to hear it from him. And as I say, it, it it took me a minute to get there. I mean, I suppose in a sense, one could argue that that was maybe a softer landing than hearing it from an oncologist, you know, the, a surgical oncologist who had done the, who had had the biopsy ordered. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought she was joking. I would have just immediately gone to that. Whereas with John, there was sort of this glide into, oh my God, you're serious. Um, and then- John was so quick to turn at that point and um, immediately start listing for me the things that I needed to do and to make them happen. And, you know, I am, you know, I knew, I know, I knew even at the time and certainly in retrospect, how fortunate I was to have somebody who already understood the, the whole, the whole process, the, what, what needed to happen next. So at this point, I'm assuming, John, you're still in your oncologist role Uh, So I'm going to keep you there for a moment. Can you help um, our listeners understand what does near inflammatory or stage three triple negative breast cancer mean? All of those words sound very scary, particularly when you string them together. What what is it? And uh, I know a lot has changed in terms of treatment options since the time of Liza's diagnosis, but what were you all facing at that time? Yeah, it's bad. It had just been invented or discovered or categorized back in 2006. So every night during Jeopardy, you can see the ad for, you know, some kind of breast cancer therapy that, you know, ER positive or HER2 positive, et cetera. When there's no marker present on the breast cancer, that's what we call triple negative. It doesn't have the sort of therapeutic hook that would be nice to use. And it was already recognized that that was a more aggressive, rapidly growing, less responsive to treatment kind of cancer. So that much we knew. What inflammatory means is that it had been growing so fast, it was tracking along the the lymph channels within the breast and grabs onto the skin. What I had seen in the bathroom two weeks before when we were getting ready one morning was when Liza leaned into the mirror to check face in the morning I saw her breast pull back as if it was being pulled from underneath the chest. Um, And that means the skin had been grabbed onto from the underside by the cancer. And that's what inflammatory means. And what that means from an oncology perspective is that almost everybody with inflammatory breast cancer, the cancer has moved somewhere else in the body, to the lungs, to the lymph nodes, to the liver, somewhere else almost all the time. So it usually means stage four, but at least for our initial staging, we never got anything and actually forever, never got anything beyond that stage three. So we're just about up to our first break. Um, Liza, I'd just like to ask you one more question. Um, You just mentioned a few minutes ago that you were in fact really grateful that John is an oncologist and immediately knew what to do and how to put those wheels into motion, but eventually he had to transition to husband and caregiver. What was that transition like for you to, to witness and to live through? Well, I think, you know, I I was thinking about this. I, I, I think through that 
the post-surgery period is when that really happened because in the, you know, right after surgery, I had drains and I have to tell you, I'm a pretty queasy person. And the idea of emptying these things out with blood clots, and you know, blech. and so I, you know, John, and unfortunately John didn't think black. And so he, to have, you know, he really was physically my caregiver during that period. And then, um, and I, I love think, every part of you, uh, even the black. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think he then, I think he then started to retreat during that period as well. Um, and, and to get out of being, he was happy to do the physical things, but he really didn't want to be involved in the, in the medical decision-making. And so he sort of was in a no man's land between I'm a doctor and I don't want to tell her what to do, but I'm also a caregiver and I'm staying out of it, which was a little odd, I think, um, for both of us and, and, and a little difficult. We really had to, had to figure out how to navigate that. So we're going to go into our first break. And when we come back, John, I'd like to hear from you about how you navigated those transitional waters and knowing when to bring out which aspect of your uh, your background, your character, and I think always your humor. It seems to be ever-present. So um, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to be taking our first break here, but do not go away. We'll just be gone for a few moments, and we're going to continue our wonderful conversation with Liza and John Marshall. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Natalie Castley, and today we're talking to Liza and John Marshall, co-authors of Off Our Chests, A Candid Tour Through the World of Cancer. John is a medical oncologist specializing in gastrointestinal cancers, and he's currently the chief of division of hematology oncology at Georgetown Lombardi. Liza shifted her career from practicing law to managing their family and becoming an active community volunteer. When we left off before the break, we were talking about John's transition from oncologist medical expert to um, husband and caregiver. And in preparing for the show, John, one of the things I heard you describe, describe yourself as is, in fact, a scared spouse, emphasis on scared. You received that first pathology report by accident. But after that, you purposefully did not even peek. I guess you could have looked on the electronic records in the system. You did not peek at the records. You uh, declined invitations to uh, attend the tumor boards where Liza's case was being discussed. Can you tell us a little bit about what the transition was for you? How difficult it was to know when to be which type of person, depending on what was happening? It was not easy. And I think only after the fact could I really reflect on how I acted, how I behaved and responded to this. I deal with the fear of cancer in other people's eyes all the time. And it's my job to coach them through that, to give them the insight and the education they need to understand the world around them better to try and reduce the fear so they they have a better sense of what's coming, et cetera. That's my job. Um, And all I could do when Liza was diagnosed was think about dark places. I I knew the logic. I I knew the facts. I knew enough about her cancer to understand the risks, what she was going to go through, what it more or less was like. But I really didn't want to lose her, and I didn't want her to suffer. I didn't want to be part of that. Um, It was easier to be, it is easier to be on the other side of the room in the white coat than it is to be uh, on the, in the patient and caregiver role. And I learned that the hard way. Um, I thought it wasn't that bad, but it's that bad. And, and I also couldn't really share that with anybody. I couldn't share those dark thoughts. I just had to bottle them up. I didn't want Liza to be that afraid of where it could go. I think she probably knew it could go there, but didn't know how close it was to going there. And so I just thought the more engaged I was in the details of Liza's care, the harder it was going to be to separate, if you will, uh, from, from that role. And I, I really didn't think it would be a good service to Liza to be in the weeds of her, uh, of her health care to that degree. The other piece that made it easy for me, and I'll be quiet about this a bit, is that it was my team, right? I knew these people who were taking care of her. She ended up getting her care at, at Georgetown. And, and so I could just hand over the trust to them and be the caregiver and have that role of emptying drains and, and those sorts of things that uh, I knew how to do. I could handle that and let them be our guide. Um, so I always say to Liza, that I don't think I was actually a very good caregiver. Liza responds back usually that, yeah, I was pretty good, good at it, but I, I, I could have done more, I guess, but I chose not to. I couldn't emotionally do more. So that brings me back to you, Liza. Uh, John's talking about, you know, not 
sort of taking over the appointments. But in the book, you do recount uh, an instance early on where you were meeting with your oncologist, um, a friend and a breast cancer expert, colleague of John's, came into the room. So you've had three doctors and one patient. And it really struck me because you were able to recognize in the moment that the conversation was literally going over your head. You were seated at a chair and everyone else was sort of half standing, reclining on furniture, talking about you, above you, I don't think purposefully excluding you, but the pace and the, the, the manner of the conversation was not one. I mean, you have a law degree, so we're going to assume that you, know, you, you have curiosity and intelligence and knowledge, but like most of us, when we get a complicated diagnosis, we're not able to grasp everything. It was just moving too fast. What was, what was that like and where did that lead you in terms of thinking about how or when to sort of regain control of your, your health and your, the choices that you were going to be making? Well, I think, I mean, my diagnosis was pretty, everybody was very, I realized in retrospect how really worried everybody was. And I think they didn't, there weren't really decisions to be made early on. And so there was this kind of, they all just were like, this is what you're doing. I mean, they didn't put it that way. Everybody was much too experienced and diplomatic to say that to me. But I think when they got into that sort of triumvirate, you know, with me there, all of a sudden it became a, you know, a, a sort of a, I can't think, just a tumor board or a kind of discussion because that was, you know, no, normally you don't have three oncologists in the room with the patient. So I can see how for them it became a, um, it just became a different setting, right? And uh, they uh, and th- they came up with a plan. And as I say, I don't I don't think there was much choice. So I didn't, you know, we the breast had to come off. It had to come off right away. There m- many of the options that were available to other people, reconstruction, that type of thing, just weren't available to me. So which made it easy in a sense at that point. But um, you know, I did get to the point where I had to, you know, I think the biggest piece for me was having to make decisions about well both where I was going to be treated, whether that was going to be in an academic setting or in a private um, doctor setting, or and if I was going to go on clinical trials, which I had available to me in both places. But, you know, that that was really complicated. And I think it's a place that John and I, in retrospect, um, both think we could have done better, I guess, in the uh, approach to that. Because, um, as John says, he sort of pulled back. He didn't want to tell me what to do, but in many ways, he knew a lot more about it than I did. But I'm not sure I wanted him to tell me what to do either. I, I, you know, I, I wanted to make those decisions for myself. Uh, but, you know, in retrospect, re- realize I didn't really know what I was doing. And, it, and the, the clinical trial I chose, at least that clinical trial for chemotherapy, was one that um, was just more in the more is better uh, phase of breast cancer treatment. So it was just additional sets of treatment of standard of care. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure my choices were, were the wisest they could have been. One of the things that the, the writing the book had us, both of us have come to realize this concept of shared decision-making in health mm-hmm. is, you know, it's fake. There's no such thing. You could never know enough as the consumer, as the patient, to really make a truly informed decision. And part of the reason we call it that is because we don't know either. The white coats don't know the right answer either. So we tell you everything we're going to tell you, everything we know, and then we sit back and say, okay, you choose. Well, 
I wasn't going to be the one dictating the choice, right? I didn't want to be the ultimate decider uh, of this shared decision-making concept. So I wanted to be there to help educate, to fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it turns out it's the patient's choice when we don't know what else to do. <laughs> um, and so making that choice for somebody else is difficult. One of the most awkward positions we're in as is, is docs is that there still are patients who say, I'll do whatever you tell me, doctor. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And we almost hate that. You might think we like it, but we actually, particularly when there's gray about what the right course of action is, because now it's your choice, right, as the physician. And if it doesn't go well, well, that was your your fault in the end. So we like to put it over there on the patient. I like to put it on lies as well, I guess. So we're going to talk a bit about Liza's choice between private uh, practice and academic setting. But in looking at the choice of academic setting, particularly where you work, John, uh, I think we need to talk about the elephant in the room, Mm -hmm. which is your um, very longstanding hostility with the breast cancer care community. Uh, I pulled a couple of quotes from the book to illustrate for our listeners, just so they understand I'm not exaggerating. Now, these are your words. And this started very early on in your fellowship. In the book, you write, I was lucky that some of the true world leaders in the field were my teachers and mentors. And boy, did they make sure I knew my stuff. Maybe this is where my irritation started. They saw breast cancer as more important than others, requiring that we fellows attend all the breast cancer conferences while considering other disease meetings were optional. I got another one. I quickly came to see the ubiquitous pink ribbons as the enemy, a symbol of unfair focus in our field. Breast cancer came first, and the rest of us get the leftovers. The breast cancer juggernaut was miles ahead of the rest of us. It was our turn, and we needed a chance to catch up. I'm just quoting you, John. I'm just quoting you. And this is my last one. This is my favorite one. I actually stopped reading for a minute and I I read this to my husband. I wrote, look at what John wrote. You (laughs) say, unable to suppress my feelings, I began slipping into my anti-breast cancer message into every dinner party, every lecture, every grand rounds, every video, and every interview. I preached my gospel of resentment and jealousy of breast cancer to anyone who would listen. I have two questions for you. We've got two minutes before we go to break. One is, I would like you to kind of explain to our listeners where this rage was coming from. Um, But I'd also like to address sort of the irony of Liza being diagnosed with breast cancer. You are now dependent on these people who you viewed as, you know, kind of overfunded and hogging up all of the cancer air. Um, Natalie, I'm still correct. I'm still right. And I'm still angry. So um, 10 times more funding for breast cancer research than all the other cancers combined. Um, The, you know, I used to joke, uh, we don't have a cure. We don't even have a race for the cure. Um, And we need to balance this out. And the rage comes from a typical clinic day that I experience of Tomorrow, I'm going to see about 22 patients. I just prepped their charts. Um, And I will tell you that of the 22, 18 are going to die on my watch. So in the GI cancer space, which is actually a more common collectively cancer than 
and certainly more fatal than, than some of the other cancers. We need, we need our advocacy too. So it came from really trying to help our own patients, our own science, our own research move forward. The switch when Liza gets breast cancer, Liza's not here today without their success, their advocacy, their funding, their clinical trials, and their progress. She wouldn't be here today. And the progress has continued. So it is anger, but it's really more jealousy. It's, it's really more the model works, advocacy works, and we need to support not just one kind of cancer. The research in one kind of cancer doesn't necessarily apply to other cancers. We need to share it across all of the different kinds of cancers and make progress together. And Liza, was it awkward for you to have the colleagues that John had maligned suddenly become your medical team? Well, I have to say they were really some of our best friends. I mean, the head of the breast cancer program at Georgetown, they, John and she did fellowship together. So, uh, so no, it really wasn't. And honestly, John's just very good at saying provocative things in a way, as you pointed out in the book, in a charming and funny way. And he gets away with a whole lot of things that I think the rest of us would never dare say because of the way he presents it. So it actually wasn't. I mean, it, it's sort of a running joke at Georgetown, John and his, you know, breast cancer issues. <laughs> All righty. Well, listen, we're going to take another break, um, but we'll be back in just a few minutes. We're going to hear more about your story and about your book, Off Our Chests. So don't go away because in just a few minutes, we'll be back with John and Liza Marshall. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We'll be right back. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. 
I'm your host, Natalie Castelli, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by John and Liza Marshall, who've been with us today telling us all about their new book, Off Our Chess. The book recounts the story of Liza's breast cancer diagnosis and treatment from both of their perspectives as patient and caregiver. Liza, as part of your treatment, uh, John was telling us earlier that there, there were not many options in 2006 when you were diagnosed. You chose to participate in uh, clinical trials, plural. You actually, I think, participated in three of them. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your experience was participating in a clinical trial? I know that you personally did not have a lot of the uh, misunderstandings that most people have about um, what kind of treatment you'll receive, um, whether you will or won't receive treatment because you were familiar with John's research work and had been in and around the medical community. But tell us a little bit what, why you made that choice and uh, what the experience was really across several of them. But what was that, what was that like for you? So I, um, I should start by saying that, I mean, sort of as you pointed out, I'm, I'm a big proponent of clinical research, not just because, I mean, it has been John's life's work in many ways, but, you know, I just, I feel I'm sort of a community oriented person. I, you know, I, I really believe that we all are better when we, when we work together. And I, you know, recognize that, you know, as John pointed out about breast cancer, the reason so much progress has been made in breast cancer is because so many people participated in clinical trials to help find not only what therapies are effective, but in what way they should be administered. So when I was off, it was no question for me that I was going to be offered, that I was going to participate in clinical trials. And as I said, even the, the first one, I really, I was, you know, lying on the table for my biopsy when somebody came in and said, you know, we're, we're banking some tissue for future research. Would you be willing for us to take some of your tissue as part of this biopsy? And so I, you know, signed the paper very, you know, in a, in a very blase way, which was actually good. Um, and um, and went ahead with that. But the the next going into cancer treatment, of course, you know, many patients are presented with uh, with that option, and it is a wonderful option to be able to participate in a clinical trial. Uh, and I knew that I wasn't. I knew enough about clinical trials to know that I was at least going to get the standard of care for for breast cancer treatment. There was not a placebo arm, and there wasn't going to be anything less than what. Um, than what a regular breast cancer patient would be receiving that I was going to get, that I was actually going to get, well, in my case, I ended up um, getting more of that. Um, and, you know, I mean, one of the nice things I think about, um, about a clinical trial is sort of, you know, there are people who are dedicated to doing, um, to doing that work in a cancer, in a, in a, a physician's office. So you sort of, in a, some senses get, I think a little bit of extra attention. People are really um, you know, on top of your case and and communicating with you, checking in with you to make see how you're doing and that type of thing. So, um, you know, I did end up dropping off the um, the second second clinical trial, the chemotherapy trial, because I, well, so, uh, because I received some advice from somebody that I should try something else. Somebody who was a, a, a another breast oncologist or medical oncologist. But my last trial, I just like to say, I actually went on the last trial because at the end of um, my my treatment, I really wanted to, um, I, they just, you just get left, right. When you finish treatment, you're, you're there with sort of nothing, nobody checking in on you. And this was an opportunity to keep, to keep connection with my oncologist, with my healthcare team and to keep doing something. I mean, the idea of sitting around and waiting is very difficult. So this was an option for me 
to keep to to try out another type of therapy in the hopes of, of preventing a recurrence. Hmm. So um, I know John has stepped away to make sure that I'm assuming it's FedEx or the Amazon delivery. Who else shows up at 445? Yeah. It's always the Amazon at my house. <laughs> but um, I'm going to ask you a, a, a question that it's something in the book that really, really struck me because we talked about how you both were very candid, very uh, forthcoming, very frank, you know, brutally honest, but not in a, a, a hard way, just, you know, just very, very clear with what was happening with you both. You know, intimacy and sexuality after a cancer diagnosis is just often overlooked. I mean, the priority is survival, right? And everything else kind of goes by the wayside. But it's often unspoken with the medical community, with your medical providers, but also between patients and their significant others as well. But you both decided, and I don't know if it was a joint decision or something that happened when you exchanged chapters, um, but you both actually speak to it um, and speak about how you didn't speak to each other about it, as I recall. Can you just share with us why you were, you thought it was important to include that aspect of the journey in the book um, and um, what it meant for you to explore that 16 years later? I put it in there from the first draft. I spend a lot of time with GI cancer patients who have to deal with ostomies and drains and things that clearly affect their sexuality. We radiate pelvises and uh, you know, it, it, there's no question it alters sexual function. And you're right. People are just focused on surviving, but they then survive the rest of their lives with maybe no ability to have sex or enjoy sex. And, uh, or certainly no one asks them about it. We're just glad you're alive. Right? Um, it was also a time when there was a pretty strong trend to do bilateral mastectomies in, in women, even for very, very early, even pre-malignant cancers. And so there's this surgical dominance of we got to cut it out of there. And we don't want to regret the cancer coming back, right? So we want to do everything we can do to reduce fear, to reduce recurrence, this sort of thing, even if it affects quality of life. And if you flash forward to the current time, Liza's actually become quite a big advocate for this space of, of survivorship. Now more and more people are surviving. Can we get the same aim of cure? Can we reach the same goal, but with less harm to people? And so I don't think that couples talk about it when they're going through these decisions because it's the patient's decision that the, the partner will live with whatever happens, right? That's the general way this happens. But I've also seen marriages and relationships break up over this. So mm. I, I felt it was important to at least put it out there. What was I thinking? I didn't share it with Liza <laughs> until 15 years later. And we, only in print. And only <laughs> in print. I was still too chicken to say it. I had to hand her the, you know, the chapter and say, oh, please read this. And it wasn't easy, some of those things, but um, I, was, I was hoping that couples going through it in the heat of battle, if they read the book, they might feel the same way or it might break the ice enough that it would um, uh, bring up the conversation and put Prompt that the conversation, the yeah. 
Yeah. And I would say I came to it much less willingly. Uh, we we had an editor who really inspired us to write the book and and helped us develop it in many ways. And she said, wrote back to me after one of my drafts and said, you know, you really need to talk about this. And I was like, really, do I have to? Um, but I, I'm really grateful that she did. I mean, I think for the same reasons John just said, and as you said, it's just, this is such an issue that people don't talk about and yet is hugely important. Uh, the, the, the talking about, you know, your life with each other. And, and that is such an important part of um, of a couple's life and whatever intimacy looks like. I think we also need to recognize that intimacy doesn't always have to be, it's not always sex, right? It's, it's, um, it's touching each other. It's being with each other. It's cuddling in bed. There are, there are certainly, um, but those, those are part of this whole process and, and figuring out how to get to either get back to normal or to, to your new normal, whatever that is. Those are the least favorite sections for our children. Just by the way. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, just mark the pages and they can flip through fast. I don't need to know about that. Thank you, mom, dad. Uh, Talk about this alternating chapter um, structure that you used. So, Liza, you wrote your chapters. John, you wrote your own. Uh, I hear that you wrote the book in Oxford, England. I have to tell you, I have all sorts of images in my head about what that was like. I watch a lot of BBC shows. Uh, and so I had you in like a beautiful historic building, either sitting at a window or in a library, walking along next to the river, having a beer, you know, like all these beautiful, beautiful images. We saw but- our Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that process? What was that process like? Why did you feel like you needed to leave the country to get the writing done? And uh, why this alternating viewpoint chapter structure that you engaged in? We made a first attempt a few years before that to write it during our lives. The kids were living here. We were, you know, working, busy. And we realized we just didn't have the time space or the head space to put words down. And honestly, because I was really tired and burning out, we were lucky enough to have a sabbatical option through Georgetown and Oxford. And it wasn't quite so romantic. It was pretty damn cool because we were living in a flat at the Jesuit college. I did go to the library, dusty old library with a window out onto the lawn and Liza stayed in the flat. Next to the window. Next to the window. (laughs) We didn't really tell each other. We knew kind of what we were each doing, but we didn't do a lot of note comparing until a few months into it when we pretty much finished writing what we were going to write and exchanged um, and, and realized that there was something there in the alternating chapters. I think we only wrote what two chapters in the end together. And those were maybe the hardest ones. Those are the ones we fought about, but, uh, um, but it was, um, it was a joyous time. It was therapy to write all of these feelings down, almost like writing to a diary in an idyllic setting away from the work day. Um, It was, it was terrific. Um, we've just got a few minutes before we come into um, our next break, but I wanted to ask you, John, obviously your colleagues are accustomed to your speaking style, your sense of humor, very charming, but did you wonder in including that voice in your chapters that perhaps you would not be taken quite as seriously as you really wanted folks to hear you? Or did you figure that would actually be strategically more sound to kind of make what you were talking about more accessible and open for a conversation? I really don't know how to 
write or talk in any other voice. I was just going to ask, do you have another version of you? (laughs) You should read my medical articles. They sort of sound the same, a little less jokey for sure. But um, no, this was meant to be real, right? I I don't, you know, I didn't want to come. I'm not stuffy. I'm not, it's not who I am. It's not the way I experienced it. Um, And so to me, it it only had, would have the impact if I, maintain my natural voice. It's been interesting to meet with medical teams around the country who have used the book as a grand round subject on Mm. some of the things we bring up. So the the white coats are actually reading the book too. Um, And I think hearing hopefully in some ways their own voice in their own heads, um, not their official voice, the, the voice that's in their head, uh, about what they're thinking about their job and, and uh, patient care and all that they're doing. Uh, and maybe for them, provide some insight um, that will help them in their careers. Well, we're going to take another break. It'll just be a few moments. We're going to be right back and continue this really wonderful conversation. I still have like seven pages worth of questions that we are not going to cover But this is just a fantastic conversation, and we are learning so much from both of your experiences and your viewpoints. So this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to be back in just a few moments right after this short break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities, Frankly Speaking About Cancer Series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Natalie Castelli, and we have been having just an amazing conversation with Liza and John about their experience living through Liza's breast cancer diagnosis and treatment. They've written a new book. It's called Off Our Chests, where they talk about their experiences. John, you you went from, we talked about this a little bit earlier, oncologist to caregiver. 
very different roles, although they both have to do with medicine, right? But can you talk a little bit more, just a little bit more in depth about what that role was like? I have found over time that caregivers tend to be very self-effacing. They make sure to shift the focus back on the patient and perhaps don't talk enough about the challenges that they're facing so that they also can get support and resources. I used to find caregivers irritating, right? So there'd be the patient and there'd be the spouse, could be the daughter, it's never the son, in the room with the patient. And it was that caregiver who was always making us late for the next patient. They wanted to make sure we did the refill. We wanted to make sure they understood everything when we had just explained it. And I was irritated about that because, you know, I just said it already, for goodness sakes. But once I became one, I realized that that's the most important person in the room, right? The caregiver has to understand what's going on. The patient has heard stuff, but their brain's going off somewhere else. They're during the treatment. You need that coach next to you. And so I find it's terrible right now, particularly during the pandemic, when caregivers can't come into the hospital with them. We've noticed how care has been very difficult to maintain without that caregiver and advocate being there. So I have to tell you, I've done a big 360 on on that and now address maybe half my comments to the caregiver and their role that they're playing. And just to pile onto that, you're, you know, I, I learned, too, that the caregiver needs support. I mean, Liza always points out that that may be the most difficult job between patient and caregiver because um, the caregiver doesn't get the cards and doesn't get the flowers but has to make sure they do everything else. And Liza didn't really need me very much, or at least I didn't provide her very much. But nonetheless, the caregiver is number one, in my opinion, in, in the, the three-way uh, of uh, the relationship between the healthcare team, the patient, and the caregiver. Liza, did you want to add anything? I see you nodding. <laughs> no, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think, um, yes, I, I agree. I do think being caregiver is just a tremendously difficult job because I think it is, not only do they not get cards or flowers, but they also get, don't get the kind of free passes. I mean, I had people saying, oh, you know, you should drop off this committee and you should, don't worry about doing that. And I don't, you know, maybe people at work said that to you. I don't know. But, um, but I don't think people recognize with caregivers the, 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 the many burdens that they are carrying in the way that they do with a patient. It's obvious with the patient, right? We've lost our hair. We just don't look that great. I mean, you, know, you look sick. You should maybe take it easy. But um, caregivers have to work harder at the looking sick part, I think. So were you, John, it sounds like you didn't really communicate a lot to Liza what some of these struggles were. Liza, were you at all aware? And were there other things that you learned in writing the book that you had not been aware of? And I guess this question really is for both of you. Things that you were not aware of about each other's experience while it was happening that you discovered as part of writing the book. For me, I think uh, the the one that was, I think, sort of shocking for me, and this uh, maybe is, is a little hard for me to recite for John, but he one of the things he said in the book was that he hoped that if I had a recurrence that um, that I would basically go quickly. And I understand why he said that. I mean, I think he didn't want the whole family to have to experience the suffering that happens in those last. And John had been through that with his mother. He had, he had experienced it personally. And, but I, it did, when I read that, and when we exchanged uh, our, our manuscripts, it was, it was difficult to read, to read that. 
Um, but as I say, I do understand as a caregiver, how, why he, why he felt that way. I actually recounted that with a patient in there <laughs> yesterday. They took it equally badly um, <laughs> as, as you did. For, for me, Liza taught me, one is how tough she is and just going through what she went through and to just keep her head up and keep moving forward and do all the things that she needed to do for everybody around her and her selflessness in that just sort of doubled down on all of that. I sort of knew that about her, but I didn't know that it would be that way in times of stress, like this kind of stress. But the other thing sort of back to the oncology side that she taught me is the importance of any kind of side effect. We used to worry only about big side effects, like that caused you to be admitted to the hospital or, you know, that was serious as we would call them. But turns out those little side effects probably add up more than the big ones. And so as an oncologist, the lessons learned, having experienced that, having read the book, the way Liza describes the experience of lying on that table, of having an IV put in, of having an injection or a biopsy, whatever it was, was so clear and graphic for me um, that I, I now have a new appreciation for every test I order, every treatment I give, and the impact that will have on patients. Mm. So we've just about come to the end of our time together. I cannot believe a whole hour has flown by. And I just want to touch on hope and grace with you both before uh, the show closes. You both faced a very dire diagnosis. And even though things have changed for uh, the specific breast cancer you have, there are still many people who do receive a diagnosis and the prognosis is, you know, frightening. Can you talk a little bit about hope and grace? Yeah, I, um, I think, you know, cancer, as you say, I mean, it's so uncertain and so unsettling and, and hope is what we have to maybe restore that balance in our lives. It's, um, and to, to give us something to help us move forward. I, John talks frequently about talking to his patients about, the reason you're doing this treatment is to live. And so you shouldn't, you, you, you want your life, you want to be living that life, it, you know, hunkering at home and saying, you know, I'm not going to go out and I'm going to, you know, spend the whole day on the internet, figuring out, you know, all the various aspects of what I have, that's not living. And so I think hope is, is really that, that fuel um, that gets us up and back out the door again. I don't know if you want to talk about grace. I think well, Liza taught me grace or teaches me grace every day. And that is, you know, it's something our whole world could use a bit of right now, maybe a big shot of it. Um, but the acknowledgement that we are all trying hard to do our best, whether we're the physician, the caregiver or the patient. And, you know, that um, if, if we know more about each other's world, Part of what's in the book is an explanation of what the other world is like for, for, for in that triangle relationship. And if you understand what it feels like, then maybe you can offer some grace to the person across from you. And I think we do that. We have better communication. We have better outcomes. And I think we have better lives. That is a wonderful place to end today's show. Thank you so much for being here for taking the time to write this book and to share your story with us and to put so much thought into what you thought 
people, all kinds of people would need to hear and learn from your experiences. The book is called Off Our Chests, A Candid Tour Through the World of Cancer. It's available at all major bookstores. There's also an audiobook version available for those who prefer to listen while they're doing other things or just quietly in a room. And for more information, you can go to offourchestsbook.com and you can find out even more about John and Liza. Thank you again for being with us today. I really, really appreciate that you found time in your schedules. Um, it's been my pleasure to have you join us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Natalie Castelli, Senior Director at the Cancer Support Community. As I mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. So please visit our website, cancersupportcommunity.org, or call us at 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Connect with the Cancer Support Community every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network and online at cancersupportcommunity.org.